Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Last week in our study of the book of Romans, Pastor Murphy showed us that man can have victory over his sin nature because of what Christ has done for us in salvation. Today, we'll see that real change is possible for the believer. I'd like you to turn your Bibles when you place the book of Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, I'd like to read from verse number 1. You can follow with me, please. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That as like Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. But if we be dead with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. But alive unto God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies, that ye should obey in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Let's have a short word of prayer and ask God to help us as we look into our text. Father, we thank you for bringing us together here in your house. We ask you to meet with us as we meet around your word. We thank you for the singing that preceded the hour of preaching. We thank you for the special song that prepared our hearts as we meditate upon God's word. We thank you for protecting us from this virus that stalks the land. We thank you that so far, to our knowledge, none of us in here or none in the, within our circle have as yet 
contracted this virus. Help us to be faithful to you. Help us to be loyal to you. Help us that while we live cautiously and with a measure of concern, fear, it is not cowering fear that we can't function. Help us, Lord, as we listen to the advice and counsel that's given to the, by the medical profession as to how we can best deal with this matter. Uh, help us at the same time to balance that with our responsibility uh, to be in your house. We pray that this tyrant of a virus would be brought completely under control and perhaps even conquered. We want to get back to a level of normalcy in our lives. We crave the removal of masks from our face. And just to be able to function as we did before normally without the encumbrance of these artificial things that we have to wear and put on. I know, Lord, we meet with you. Our day has been preoccupied with other concerns and our distracted minds have pursued things that pertain to the flesh and to our daily responsibility for the home and the family. And you've set aside a time for us to meet. It's called Sunday. One out of seven belongs to you. May we not rob you of that time by falling asleep this morning or perhaps allowing our minds to be in our homes, worrying about the pot, if it turn off the oven or some other matter that engages our minds so that we cannot fully focus on your word for the one that has walked into this building and perhaps is searching for help and desiring that somehow they'll come under the power of God so that their lives can be marvelously changed they run from one church to another perhaps one meeting to another They've wet their, bear, their, their beds with tears and they've made every kind of resolution possible. But to no avail. The dread master of sin still dominates. And they perhaps entered wounded this morning, hoping that you would pour in the oil and the wine and the balsam and heal. We pray this morning you would not disappoint them. We pray that you would use your word specifically to help that person who is really, really searching for answers. Would you just give me help this morning to do justice to your word, to present your truth in a way that people can grasp it and understand it, that they can take out the hand of faith and reach and take forth of your word and be empowered through your word, the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. Help me to do this as best as I can. And Lord, overrule any folly in my thinking, in my presentation, even in my thoughts. Overrule by your sovereign power and visit us in grace this morning. We pray these mercies in Christ's name. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein. There are many reasons that people give for not becoming Christians. Most of these reasons are generally based on two things. Number one, 
there are numerous excuses that people give. And number two, they have a misunderstanding of scripture. But there's at least one reason that carries some weight and bears some consideration. And I call that the stubborn doubt that real change is possible. Above all things that people uh, are hesitant about the Christian faith, it's because they just don't believe there's any such thing as a radical transformative change. One person says to the pastor, Pastor, you don't understand. I've been like this for so many years. I don't think I can ever change. The drunkard says to the pastor, You don't know what it is to live year after year without being able to avoid a drink. I don't think you, uh, it is possible for me to live without alcohol. Pastor, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried, I've resolved, I've resolved, I've, I've done everything possible. But you just don't understand the power that this thing over my life. Still one person would say, you know, pastor, I just can't forgive. You just don't know what that person has done to me. I just cannot forgive that person. I can't change my mind. I just find it impossible to forgive. This Jesus stuff that you're talking about is just what it is, stuff. I don't think that I can really, really forgive that person that has hurt me so badly. Now this problem of change is one of the greatest obstacles against Christianity. Lots of people do not think that when we talk about real change, that there is such a thing as radical transformative change. But I want to say to you this morning, change is possible. A man may be going in this direction for years and for decades. And in a moment, he moves in a different direction. It is called the power of the gospel. In other words, no matter what your debilitating problem is, that holds you down and controls you and masters you and enslaves you. Even after decades of slavery. You can be freed and you can be emancipated. The power of sin in your life, in my life can be broken. So you don't have to continue living under this cloud of doubt. That change is not possible. I'm saying to you this morning that loss can be conquered. I am saying to you that addiction can be defeated. I'm saying this morning that hate can be changed into love. I am saying that the grip of pornography on your life can be broken. I am saying that a lifestyle of love of lying can be overcome. I am saying, my dear friend, that a homosexual can change. And I don't care what you put in the bracket. There is such a thing as change in a person's life. 
This is the question that Paul deals with in Romans chapter 6. And he states in unambiguous, unequivocal, unmistakable certainty that real change is possible. But I know what you're saying this morning, Pastor. I've heard that before. As a matter of fact, I've heard it all my life. But is it possible that a person can stop and change? I want to say to you this morning that when you look in the scripture, there is no doubt that the Bible teaches change. And that we need to get a hold and a handle of what is the process of that change in our lives. What do I need to do to really experience real change, radical change, transformative change? Is there a specific passage in the Bible that explains how it works? And I'm here this morning to guarantee you that Romans chapter 6 is the key that unlocks the change that binds you this morning. It's the master key to this whole problem of victory in your life. Now, if you don't believe me this morning, all I can say to you is what Jesus said to those people. Come and see. Come and see. see. Witness it for yourself. And I'm saying to you this morning, this is the venture that we want to take on this morning. And to show you that change is really possible. That the power of sin in your life can be and should be broken. By the way, is that possible? Well, just think for just a moment. Who wrote this chapter? Huh? Who wrote Romans chapter 6? Now, a man talking about change like this certainly should exhibit in his life some change. Unless he's a hypocrite. So I want to assure you this morning that take this very man for, him, for yourself this morning. This man, Paul, that wrote this entire chapter about how we can change, how we can be transformed, how the sin in our lives can be broken. He made that statement, but was it true in his life? I want you to look with me very for just a moment at 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. I want you to look at what this man was before he met Christ and what this man became after he met Christ. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1 and look at verse number 12. He said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me for that he counted me faithful putting me where into, into the ministry. Notice what he says. Who was before what? Paul says, I was three things before I met Jesus. I was a blasphemer. You know what it is to blaspheme? It means to speak evil against God. It means to disparage God. It means to belittle God. It means to curse God. That's what it means. Paul said, that's what I used to be. I disparaged the God of heaven. I spoke against the God of heaven. I was no friend of this one called Jesus. But then he said secondly. I was a what? A persecutor. I hated Christ so much. That every person that believed in this Christ. I pursued him. 
like Al-Qaeda would. I was an extremist. I was a radical. I was a zealot. And I persecuted. As a matter of fact, if you read the book of Acts, you read that Paul traveling hundreds of miles to find people who believe, to put them in jail, to imprison them, or to have them stoned. This is the man that wrote this chapter. But he goes on and says, thirdly, I was injurious. You know what that word injurious means? It means to cause harm. I was a violent man. I was a religious fanatic just like the Muslims would take a man's head off. I would stone him. That is who I was before I met Christ. So that's what he was. What a horrible list the Apostle Paul gives us here. But then notice what he became after he met Christ. If you look at the chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 1, look at verse 1. He said, what, Paul or what? An apostle. <laughs> Here's the man, and by the way, he's an apostle not of God. He's an apostle of the same Jesus he tried to destroy. So from being a blasphemer, a persecutor, an injurious man, bent on destroying Christianity, now he's changed. And the persecutor becomes the preacher. Something has changed. Something has happened. He has met Jesus. But he's not only an apostle. He says, I thank God that he put me into the ministry. This same man that tried to destroy Christianity became the chief propagator of Christianity. He's the one that carries the gospel. And everywhere he went, he dotted the landscape with church after church. What a change between what this man was and now what he now is. So don't tell Paul change is not possible. He said I'm exhibit number one. But you know he says something else as well. In verse number 15 look how he says. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I am the number one sinner. If God can save me and transform me, Paul said he can change you and transform you as well. I have encountered this Christ. And if he can change me. If God saved the chief, the foot soldiers are easy tasks for him. Change is possible, sir. Don't let this stubborn unbelief keep saying to you, I can't change, I can't change. I'm saying it is possible. Exhibit number one is the Apostle Paul. Take another example of this concept of change. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at what these people were before. And what they became after. And by the way, it's a terrible list. Paul lists 10 of the most despicable sins you can think about. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. He says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Be not deceived. And then he began to list. Neither fornicators. Neither idolaters. Nor adulterers. Nor effeminate. You know what effeminate means by the way? Effeminate is the homosexual female side of the male. That's what it is. So he's talking about the female homosexual. The man that is the woman in the homosexual relationship. That's what he's talking about. The effeminate. And then he goes on to say, an abuser of himself with man, that's the male homosexual. He abuses the effeminate guy. And then Paul goes on to say, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. But notice verse 11. What he said? But such were some of you. In other words, Paul is saying, in the Corinthian church, you had these 10 different sinners sitting down next to each other, but marvelously saved, marvelously transformed. That's what they were. Now, what did they become? Look at verse 11. But such were some, but you are now what? Washed? You are now what? Sanctified? And you are now what? Justified. You're no longer what you used to be. You're somebody else. You know why? Real change has taken place. So when you sit there this morning saying, Pastor, you just don't understand. Which of these sins dominate your life? Are you a fornicator? You must get under every woman's dress that you meet. Is that you? Are you an idolater? You may not worship a little idol, but what's the most important thing in your life? Is it your house? Is it your car? What's it? What's the most important thing in your life? What stops you from coming to church? Is it polishing the metallic God that you have? What is it? What is more important to you than God? That's your idol. Are you a homosexual this morning? No, pastor don't mention that word. But are you a lesbian? Listen, you don't know who is who these days, you know. <laughs> You'll be shocked. <laughs> you don't know who is who. You don't know what is dominating the lives of people in the church. Let me ask another question. Are you a thief? Do you embezzle the funds where you worked? You know, you just take a dollar here, but after 100 days, it's $100, you know that? And after 365 days, that's $365. They're not going to miss that. You take up the pens and the pencils and the paper and so on and saying, well, these people owe me. Don't pay me enough. See? So it doesn't matter if I pilfer this here and there. You know what I mean? Are you a thief? Are you covetous? That word means that you desire something somebody has and you envy what that person has. So you live in envy. I, I hate that person for what they have. If I could kill them, I'll kill them and take it away from them. That's a, a covetous person. Are you like that? 
You went to school with friends and you were much smarter than your friends, but they've got nice cars and nice homes and poor you just, you're like, when you left school, you know, starting out, but your age is catching up with you. So when you see them driving a new car, I know where he got his steal it. The guy didn't steal it. He worked hard for it. But because of your covetous nature, you're now impugning to him motives that are wrong. Are you covetous? Are there any drunkards in here? You got it under the bed. You sip it every night. I had a mom that whenever I went home back to Barbados, she used to smoke. And when I walked through the house, somehow the smoke cigarette would disappear under the bed. I used to wonder if the house could burn down. No, she didn't understand. I saw that every time. Every time I saw that. But she had a, a kind of respect for me. I must be honest with you. She had a respect for me that when I walked through the house, it didn't matter what, whatever she smoked, she just disappeared with it. Are you controlled by some kind of drug? Maybe it's not alcohol. Maybe it's marijuana. And you're calling it jaweed. It's not jaweed. It's killweed. That's what it is. It's, it's mind-transforming weed that opens the door to demonic possession. That's what it is. Not jaweed. It's the same coyote thing that is used by the Indians when they use the cactus. That gives them this out of experience where they experience visitation with all kinds of spirits. It's the same type of thing. See? Are you a reviler? Abusive? Verbally abusive? Maybe your children, your wife. Maybe your neighbor. You're just abusive. That tongue of yours is sharp as a razor. See? And then they ask you, are you an extortioner? Do you have what they call inordinate greed? Are you a money shark? Anything for money. Is that your philosophy of life? Well, listen to you. Those are exactly the credentials these people had before they were saved. And then Paul said, that's, no, that's what you used to be. Change is possible. You look at the apostle Paul's life. You look at these. And by the way, what does he call them at the beginning of the chapter? He said to them, saints. Imagine he calling people like this, saints. Call to me, saints. You know why they're different? They change. Well, let me point out one other example this morning that change is possible. Just think for just a moment of the Apostle John. Now, when you think of the Apostle John, what words immediately is conjured up in your mind when you think of the Apostle John? Who wrote the Gospel of St. John, who wrote the three epistles? Uh, what, might, what comes to mind as you read the Gospel of John, you read the, the epistles? There's one thing that comes up. This is, the, this is the apostle of love. No one speaks more on the question of love like John does. He's the only one in the Gospels that God so loved the world. No other Gospel has that in it. You read 1 John, he talks about brotherly love. You read 2 John, love, love, love. But do you know that John was... The very opposite of that before you got saved. Let me show you who John was. You recall what John is called in Mark chapter 3 verse 17. He and his brother James are called what? The sons of thunder. You repeat that? The sons of thunder. Sons of anger and wrath. Now they were fishermen. If you want to see somebody angry at something, you see a fisherman. When, he, when the line gets tangled up or a, 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 
uh, hope goes into his finger or the fish not biting or something is happening. You can develop that kind of an anger. You remember when our Lord sent the disciples ahead to go to Samaria because he was going to Jerusalem? And he said, go and prepare the way for me to come. You remember that story? It's given to us, by the way, in um, Luke chapter 9, verse 51 to 55. John goes over and he prepares our Lord to come to Samaria. And the Bible says, the Samaritans would not receive him. Now, you know, there's a, there's a hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews. It's a historical hatred. And that came about after the Assyrian captivity. The Assyrians took their people and put them in Israel. And there was an intermarriage between the Jews and the, Samar- and the, and the Assyrians creating what is called the Samaritan race. Or ethnic group. And there was always this hostility that they were not real Jews. Because they were a mixture. So now they hear that this Messiah, this Jewish Messiah is passing through. You remember what the woman at the well said? What do the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans? We don't, we don't deal with those people. See? And then he said, they're not going to receive you. And uh, you know what John asked the Lord? Lord, you want me to call them fire from heaven and burn them all up? <laughs> Read it for yourself. You know what Jesus said? You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. You've got the wrong spirit. This is the man of anger and wrath and thunder that becomes the disciple of love. You know why? He met Jesus. Change. 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 Look, I can go through the archives of church history and call up individual after individual and explain to you what they were before and how they were marvelously transformed and changed to encourage you to understand that there is such a doctrine that sin can be broken in your life. Augustine. I'm not going to go into detail of Augustine. What was Augustine's problem before he became a bishop? Augustine's problem was the problem that most young men have. Not most young men in Antigua or in Barbados or in St. Vincent, but most young men have a womanizer. Augustine just loved women. And because he was a philosopher, women gravitated towards Augustine. So the thing that stopped Augustine from being saved was this, he had to give up women. And that's a tough one. If you don't think of this tough... Walk down on Saturday, go down, to the, go down to the marketplace and see what's going on and see why it's so tough for these people. See? And then one day he picks up the Bible and he hears a voice saying, pick up and read. And he picks up Romans and it says, make no provision for the flesh, put on the Lord Jesus. And that was the moment he was marvelously converted. That one verse. That was the answer. Putting on Jesus. For the first time in his life, like a flash. That's what I've been looking for. See? And he became the great bishop. See? Augustine. I was reading the life of C.S. Lewis. One of the great Christian apologists. If you haven't read, read mere Christianity. Or even read school tape letters. You haven't read anything that, yet that is comparable. You need to read those books. See? But you know what? C.S. Lewis was before he became a great 
apologist for Christian. He was an atheist until he met Jesus. Then he was marvelously changed. You ever heard of H.A. Ironside? Harry H. Ironside? I have several commentaries in my library by this man. You know what he was before he got saved? An agnostic. Didn't know if there was a God or no God until he met Jesus. There's a track that we have here when we're starting the, the drug addiction program. A, a guy called um, Steve Cullingham. Read his story. How he was marvelously saved. A man that was addicted to drugs. Completely addicted to drugs. He got into an accident and he was saved as a result of that accident. But after he came out of this thing and he met Jesus, he now turned around and started what is called Reformers Unanimous. A ministry to help addicts because Christ has helped him. He now believed that Christ could help others. Change. Change. Most of you in here should probably know Josh McDowell. Again, I want to recommend to you that if you haven't, uh, don't know who this guy is and you haven't read his books, I would recommend strongly that you try to purchase them even if you have to put up and stay away from a meal. He wrote two great books. It's called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, Volume 1. Evidence That Demands a Verdict, Volume Number 2. It answers all the fundamental issues and questions that people have today. But you know what he was before he got saved? You think you hate? You think you hate that person? That you just can't stand that person? What they've done to you? You think you really hate? Well, let me tell you how much he really hated. Let me, let me read to you what he said. I want to read it to you what he said. He said, as I was growing up, there was one man I hated more than anyone in the whole world. I hated that man with a fierce hatred. I hated everything he stood for. I especially hated the things that he did. He said, I used to lie in bed dreaming of ways to kill that man because I hated it so much. And then he said, that man was my father. When I read that, I could not believe that the same guy that wrote Evidence that Demands a Verdict. I had no idea how much hatred he had. But then he met Jesus. And his hatred turned to love. Christianity is about change. In fact, if change is not possible, if salvation does not bring about change, we are just playing a religious game. It's about time we put away the game and go home and do something else. Change. And I'm saying to you this morning that there's no greater proof of Christian change and what Paul explains here in this chapter that he deals with. And he explains that the reign of the power of sin has been broken in the believer's life. I want to say as I deal with this text that there's something we have to constantly de be deal, uh, keep in mind as we deal with this chapter. The reason why Paul is dealing with this matter of the power of sin that is broken in the believer's life came as a result of a misunderstanding about two things that Paul had taught in chapters 1 to 5. And here's the two things. Number one, Paul had taught that the gospel is a gospel of free grace. 
He taught that. The Apostle Paul teaches in chapter 1 to chapter 5 that the gospel is a free gift that is received on the basis of faith and faith alone. Without any works, without any law, without any form of religious ritual. It is just a gift that is freely given of grace based on faith alone. That created a problem. Like it creates a problem for people today. The second thing that Paul does in this chapter 1 to 5 is that Paul having shown that salvation is a gift of free grace based on faith alone, Paul next shows that the person who put their faith and trust in Christ is eternally secured forever. And Paul gives eight reasons in chapter 5 why the believer is eternally secure. Now wait a minute. So a man is saved by grace through faith, apart from works, apart from law, apart from any ritual. And then you're telling me that that same man is eternally saved forever? Paul, you don't understand what you just did. You just give that man freedom to live as he please. That's exactly what you just did. If I'm saved by grace and I'm eternally saved forever... Well, it doesn't matter what I do now. That's the problem that was created by Paul in chapter 5. And Paul has to answer that question. What stops the believer who is saved by grace to faith and eternally secure? What stops him from living like a devil? And Paul is going to answer that question in this chapter. Now I want to say to you this morning, and I want you to listen to me very carefully. Anytime a man truly preaches the gospel as is given in the Bible, it is always subject to misunderstanding. As a matter of fact, the way you can know you're really preaching the true gospel is that people misunderstand it. You see, people who preach works and church and confirmation and baptism... People don't have problems with that. They understand what the person is saying. Okay, you put your faith in Jesus, but then you work your way to please God. They don't have a problem with that. But when you tell a man that he's saved by faith alone, by grace alone, and there's nothing that could ever happen to separate him from God, we find that hard to believe. You know why? We do not understand grace. Because we're not gracious ourselves. We treat people like they treat us. We respond to people like they respond to us. Everything in our world is based on merit. We get rewards based on merit, things that we do. But when it comes to salvation, we don't understand a free gift offered without any strings attached. I repeat, anytime you preach the true gospel as is presented in the Bible... It will always be subject to misunderstanding. And you can always test whether you really preach the true gospel if people misunderstand it. Because you cannot preach this gospel and present it as the Bible presents without people misunderstanding what the gospel is. Think for just a moment of how irrational, how irreligious, 
and how irresponsible it seems to tell a person he's saved by grace with no works, no law, no ritual, no baptism, no church, no confirmation, no catechism, no penance, no mass, no priest, no auricular confession, and no extreme unction. All of these other things are things the Catholic Church adds to faith. So you not only have to have faith, you also have to have works in order to be saved. Now you think that is madness? Think of telling that same person that there's absolutely nothing that can separate between him and God after you say. Neither tribulation, nor distress, nor persecution, nor famine, nor nakedness, nor peril, nor sword, nor death, nor life, nor angel, nor principality, nor power, nor things present, nor things come, nor heights, nor death, or just in case I miss any other thing. That's what Paul would say in Romans chapter 8. See? Truth is dangerous. Real truth is dangerous. Dangerous in the sense that it is open to misunderstanding. But you know what? We have no authority and we have no right to add anything to this gospel. The moment we add something to this gospel to put people in line, to bring people in line, we are vitiating this gospel and corrupting this gospel and destroying this gospel because it's no longer a grace-based gospel once we add something to it. So even though Paul has this problem of being misunderstood on the matter of salvation, on the matter of eternal security, the apostle Paul doesn't even write, okay, let me correct that. No, let me add something to it. You need grace and faith plus something else. No, Paul says, I can't do that. Because that's not the gospel. Let me let you into a secret. All other religions outside of Christianity are work-based religions. All of them. It's about salvation by doing some kind of work. Well, pastor, you doubt me? Is it, you, do you know Muslim in Antigua? Ask him how he gets saved. You just ask him. You know how Muslim gets saved? This is how he gets saved. He believes that when he gets to heaven, there's a scale. And God puts all the bad things he did in one part, and God puts all the good things he did in one part. And if the good outweigh the bad, presto, up to heaven. It's by works he believes he is saved. Ask any Catholic who is honest with you. Tell them that a man is saved by faith alone. And the Catholic dictionary and the Catholic theology says, If any man says a man is saved by faith alone, let him be anathema. Let him be a curse. They do not believe in salvation by faith alone. It's salvation plus works. If you doubt me, Google it. Get one of their dictionaries. Go into it and check it up for yourself. A curse is pronounced on any man that says a man is saved by faith alone. You can't handle this teaching and this doctrine. But we have no basis to add to this. And we as believers uh, who believe in, in the gospel 
must preach this gospel even though, as in the case of Paul, it is misunderstood and misinterpreted. Be sure you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy breaks down specific words and meanings in Romans chapter 6 verse 2 to show how real change is possible for the believer. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.